On Friday, April 28th, the City Club of Idaho Falls welcomed Jeff Newgard, Chairman, President, and CEO of Bank of Idaho, on the topic Silicon Valley Bank Impacts, What Happened and What Did We Learn? This discussion includes impacts on the economy, policy and regulation, the banking industry, and community banks. This and all past Idaho Falls City Club forums are available to listen to at any time at ifcityclub.com. So this is a wonderful day, beautiful day, to welcome back to Idaho Falls our good friend Jeff Newgard to talk about banking, which is never far from front pages of America, if you think about it. Uh, ever since Alexander Hamilton and Robert Morris conceived of the National Bank in 1789, uh, American banking has always been of great concern to the lives of Americans and the life of the nation. And through the centuries, the ups and downs of the successes and falls and misfortunes of banking have dominated our discussion, as it must be in a capitalist economy because it intersects our lives, our economic opportunities, the growth of the nation, and governmental institutions. And of course, most recently, as you all know, roughly a month ago, we saw the implosion of two banks, the Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank, which induced for a time uh, something of an economic panic, and it required an emergency governmental intervention uh, to rescue these banks. And today, if you're right up to uh, following the news, you know that the Federal Reserve Bank issued a scathing report, condemnation of the failure of the bank managers, the board of directors, and even cast criticism on the Fed itself for failing to adequately um, supervise uh, the, those two banks. And, and, and that turmoil, of course, has led now to uh, renewed calls for tighter restrictions and regulations on American banking. And so it's always in our minds, and as we look at the, the tentative status of the First Republic Bank, people wonder, uh, will that too have a ripple effect or a large effect on America's financial system. So it's right here in front of us today, and we couldn't have a better speaker than Jeff Newgard, who is a deeply learned man and steeped in knowledge about the ways and means of banking practices and influence in our country. He's long been involved in the banking industry, going all the way back to at least 1998. He has held a number of very important posts. He was, for example, previously the executive vice president of the Home Street Bank, and subsequent to that, he was the president and CEO of the Yakima National Bank. He is, of course, currently the chairman, the president, and the CEO of the Bank of Idaho. That's a lot of titles. My shoulders just slumped to repeat that. And, of course, he's, uh, he's spent a lifetime studying banking. He earned a degree from the Graduate School of Banking in Colorado. He earned a Master's of Business Administration from Washington State University and was an undergraduate at Walla Walla Community College. And he's been, part, he's been a very active participant in, in the affairs of um, organizations, including nonprofits, business organizations, governmental institutions. Uh, here locally, you know that he has been chiefly responsible for the rise in his capacity as chairman of the board of the War Bonnet uh, Festival. He's also been uh, nominated and, and elected to a very important post, uh, given our interest in national security. He is the chair 
of the board of a select committee representing independent bankers of America on cybersecurity. So he brings a wealth of knowledge and information to the many issues that we'll take up today. Uh, and as Park said, uh, and I can confirm, Jeff is a very fine golfer. We were partners, and I'm still angry for him moving to Boise because I lost a golf partner. Uh, but let me, uh, with great pleasure, uh, ask you to provide a warm welcome to Jeff Newgard. Well, thank you, my friend. Well, I'll start here while they get uh, things up and running, but th this is so fun for me because I'm among friends. Every one of you are friends. This is uh, about the most friendly group I could ever speak to, <laughs> except for maybe Mick. I don't know. <laughs> tolerate me. I, yeah, I do tolerate you. I love you, Mick, and uh, every one of you. It's just been so fun to, to get to know you. And I first came to this community eight years ago. I, the reason I wanted to come here were, were the people. I really love this community and continue to love it and love it more because of all of you. I've gotten to know you and uh, enjoy a good friendship. So I'm looking forward to this today. Uh, of course, when we're talking about banking, it's uh, not typically the most exciting topic. And uh, we would like to make it boring again. That would be really cool. <laughs> that you don't have a, a speaker talking about the exciting things going on uh, in banking and uh, a failure, no less. And that, it's kind of a sad topic, but we'll, we'll get through that. So this is what we're going to talk about today is the uh, Silicon Valley Bank failure. What exactly happened there? The state of community banking in general. I serve in leadership, as Dave noted, in uh, ICBA, which is the Independent Community Bankers of America. So I'm, I'm kind of plugged into that community. And then I'm going to talk about local impacts. So we're going to talk specifically about the state that Bank of Idaho is in, because I think you all want to know about that. So when, when we talk about SBB, this is what comes to my mind. <laughs> How many uh, have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, so if I was in a different uh, age group, maybe there would be like two hands, right? But you're like me. Uh, I love this movie. I, and I cry every year when I watch it. It's like I've never seen it. Uh, but it really speaks, at least to me, this is the epitome of why I do what I do. I love uh, investing in the community and in people. And that's what it's a wonderful life it's all about. And, and one of my favorite quotes is, hey, George, I think there's something funny going on at the bank. I, I never want to hear that. <laughs> something funny going on at the bank. Uh, and if you remember that, there was a run. This was during the Great Depression. And there were people lined up outside the door. The bank was locked and people were flooding in to take out all their deposits. It's the most frightening thing for a banker. And so he ran in, and of course he knew every single person by name. And he walked through with them, calming their fears. Because it's based on panic. That's what a run is. It, it's all based on panic. And he was able, individually, to get them calmed down which the Silicon Valley Bank, you know, people say it's a classic run on bank. Kinda. It's more of a modern run on the bank because now we have Twitter, we have 
electronic funds transfer. We have all these modern things that we can move money very rapidly. If you can have a run on toilet paper, <laughs> you, you can have a run on a bank. And when S Silicon Valley Bank went down, I took note because of this, because we just went through this. And I thought, gosh, if we have a national panic where everybody's going into banks, that is going to be horrible. Horrible not only for banks and community banks, but it's not good for the community. It's not good for the financial system. We want the financial system to be strong and solid and secure. So what, what happened there? So Silicon Valley Bank was 16th largest bank in the US, assets over 211 billion, so not a community bank in my estimation. On March 9th, due to the panic, depositors, they took out 500,000 per second. That's not a classic run on the bank. That's a modern run on the bank. Uh, Twitter was a, a huge part of that. On March 10th, uh, SBB collapsed, becoming the biggest U.S. bank failure since 2008. And then March 12th, which I don't know what your political uh, thoughts are on this issue, but it, uh, the FDIC and Treasury announced uh, the backing of those depositors. And that really did calm things. I was actually at an Independent Community Bankers uh, of America conference at the time this happened. So I was with bankers throughout the entire nation. And we all just took a breath in and said, OK, what's going on? And when they made that move, we all kind of took a sigh of relief that there's some calm that was brought in. Uh, back in. Now, of course, we get to be assessed. All the healthy banks uh, get to have our assessments of FDIC insurance go up, so we have to pay for it. But I think it did do the job of kind of relaxing things for a minute. And I'll tell you, on that weekend, just as a side note, uh, I held an emergency meeting on that Sunday prior to the bank opening on Monday just to make sure everything was squared away make sure that we had a good PR system, made sure that we had talking points for our frontline staff, made sure that our, everything was okay on liquidity, made sure we got in front of our customers and talked to them, made sure they felt calm because I didn't want to go in Monday morning and have, uh, have a panic and have a problem. So before we move on, banking is kind of strange because our liabilities would be your assets. So we're, we're kind of turned around a little bit. But the way a bank works is that you have loans, and you have securities, and you have reserves on the asset side. Well, the reserves and, and course net worth over there in the yellow. And then you have uh, the deposits, so checking accounts that you would have, CDs, money market accounts, savings accounts. The, those are liabilities. What's interesting is that the securities over here, bonds, they're all in, in virtually every bank, they're very high quality securities. They're treasuries, munis, mortgage-backed securities. They're meant to be solid, safe investments. The, the interesting thing is accounting rules are such that there are two classes of securities. There's available for sale and held to maturity. All the available for sale securities are marked to market. So if you have, say, uh, a stock account at, at, a, at uh, Raymond James, 
for example. You could mark that to market every quarter. Say, oh, I lost 100,000 or I gained 100,000, but when do you actually realize that gain or loss? When you sell it, right? That's when that happens. So from your balance sheet perspective, you will see this ebb and flow. So if you did a personal financial statement every quarter and you went through all your securities and all your investments, said, okay, this one went up, my net worth went up or it went down. If you have a long range perspective, you don't get too worried about it. It's just part of the market ebbs and flows. That's how we look in banking at the securities portfolio. We want it there in case something catastrophic happens. We have liquidity. We also have liquidity to fund loans. So it's a nice little nest egg, if you will. And we market to market. It's not a big deal. Until now, it's become a focal point. And what SVB did is they took, they had $100 million in securities. 100 billion, 100 billion, sorry. Uh, and they took 80 billion and moved it over to held to maturity. Now, held to maturity securities don't have to be marked to market. They're held for a long time. They, they, they're not part of your financial or your, your uh, adjustment. AOCI is what they call it. And then they took the rest, the 20 billion, and sold it and realized, actually realized that loss of about 1.8 billion. Huge, huge loss. They didn't need to do that. Just keep it there and, and there's no fuss about it. So what happened? You had a stress on the market value of the securities. But it was more than just the market value, it was that they actually sold it. And then they turned around, so they're in a community with all these uh, investors, uh, PE firms, hedge funds, all these uh, folks involved in the, in the uh, tech space. Uh, and they said, oh wait, we're going to take that 1.8 billion loss and we're going to raise capital from all of you. And they're like, what? That's, and, and that's what kind of sparked the initial panic, is what's going on? Why are they taking this loss and then wanting to recoup it uh, on the backs of shareholders? And I would say, if you want to boil down this talk and what happened with SVB, number one, you have panic, customer panic. Number two, mismanagement. If they had 56 management decisions to make, they made them all wrong, all 56. If they had just made one right, it might have saved the bank. But every single one of them, they made wrong. The way they sold the security portfolio, bad decision. The way they communicated it. If they wanted to do that, they could have raised capital first, then taken the loss. They would have been fine. But they didn't. They did it the opposite, which sparked uh, that kind of issue. The way they did their press releases were really archaic and weird. They, 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 they did not reach out to their customers. I mean, you could go on and on about all the mistakes, and I think it's a great case study of what not to do. And then the uh, concentration issue. They had all their eggs in the ba one basket, and that's in that Silicon Valley area, in one specific area particularly. And who would ever think that the, the marketing PR group would be so darn important, but 
in this case, it was and is to this day because it has such an interface with that customer feelings. I mean, how do you feel about your bank is important. So you don't get that panic. And so these are just some of the ripple effects. Uh, and if you, if you go through and, and get your phone out and, and look at all the stocks that are bank banks out there, it, it looks like this. It's a cliff. And so it sent a ripple effect throughout the entire nation in, in, in banking. And it's, it's unfortunate because it's very specific. It's a very specific customer base, very specific bank in how they were structured and what they did. And it isn't systemic. It, it isn't like back in 08 and 09 where we had a bubble and we had, had a systemic issue. Of, of subprime. This is a very specific issue and it should have never happened. But it did. These are some of the downgrades that we're seeing out there. So when you talk about bank failures, we have two, and, and who knows what's going to happen with First Republic. Uh, but in 22, we didn't have any. 21, we had four in 2020 and nobody blinked an eye. We had four in 19. Nobody blinked an eye. We had eight in 2017. Did you even remember that? I didn't, and I'm in the industry. I didn't even pay attention to it. I, it wasn't in my backyard. Five in 16, eight, 18, then of course back into the crisis days. So what's the difference in, in Silicon Valley Bank based or versus a community bank? Community banks are relationship-driven, deep customer knowledge, kind of like George Bailey. We all know our customers by name. In fact, over that weekend, I was texting one of our accounts that has eight, $8 million in his account. And we have a texting relationship, a lot like my fellow golf nerd here. Uh, and is, I know his name, I know his family, and we have trust and friendship there. And that's the difference, is, and, and it's more broad-based. We span from eastern Idaho to eastern Washington, and, and we have a very diverse group of clients. We have 30% in uninsured, which is over that 250,000 FDIC insured, whereas Silicon Valley Bank had a huge amount of uninsured deposits. So when you have $20 million that just leaves you overnight, or $50 million, that, that can really make some impacts. Diverse industries, and then we have fewer as, as a group, as community banks. So uh, we're, we're invested in the towns where you are, obviously. We're connected to the community. So I know this is kind of uh, busy with numbers, but if you look at our total uh, securities over assets, about 20%. Uh, loans and deposits, we're using that, those deposits. It's like the George Bailey days. It's like those deposits are in Bob's house and it's in Joe's business. We put that money to work in the community, right here. And if you look at the, our fair value to our book, because those, a lot of those investments we had uh, back when rates were low, about a 90% of what they were back then. 
an average life of about seven years. So if you adjust and take, take that, uh, oh, and then of course uh, your uninsured deposits, about that 20, 27.5%. So a lot less dependent on uninsured depositors. And then our AOCI, that's that adjustment I talked to you about on the uh, mark-to-market securities. So about 8.3% in that first quarter of 23. So yeah, from a market value perspective, we see that diminish, but we're not selling it. We can pledge those securities uh, and, and they're good. It's a good nest egg to have. There's, there's not a problem with that. And when it goes back up, then we'll have, have a gain there. And, no, and nobody cares about the gain either. It's, uh, it's, it's a very diversified, very solid portfolio. Another thing we look at is borrowing capacity. So if we had to pledge securities and our loans, how much could we cover in uninsured depositors? So anybody over 250,000 came in to, today or tomorrow and took their money out What's our coverage ratio? 129. So that's pretty darn good. We, we, we have the ability to meet the needs if that were to occur, which we don't want it to. And there's, there's a, before I go there, uh, there, there's a lot of really great solutions now to get FDIC insurance where you don't have to put $250,000 in every single bank in town we have a, a thing called Intrify, and it was actually developed by bank regulators. And it's a clearinghouse. And, and the best way to describe this is if you brought in $500,000, put it with Bank of Idaho, 250 would be insured. And this doesn't include any kind of structuring because if you had a couple, then each one, you could get 250 for each. But just for simplicity's sake, one person 250 is insured out of that 500,000. We then send 250 out into this clearinghouse. The clearinghouse then finds another bank and puts 250 there. That's FDIC insured. And then they, in a reciprocal relationship, will send 250 of one of their customers to us. And so from a net effect, we still have $500,000 of that deposit and the customer is insured in that full amount. And you can go up to millions, uh, millions and millions. Uh, it's, we're not gonna hit that cap uh, anytime soon. Uh, so it's, it's a very nice thing, and we, we did see some customers utilize that, that are FDIC uh, insurance conscious. conscious. Uh, Interfi is a great product, and it costs us about 15 basis points, so it's very cheap. And it's, uh, if it gives you the security, um, that's great. We've had others that say, no, we, we're, we're fine with Bank of Idaho and we'll just be in an uninsured position, which is, as you can see, about 27.5%. So this is our capital. This is our net worth. Uh, we are in the 80th percentile. We're very solid on our capital. We raised $53 million in additional capital last year. And the purpose was to buy five branches of my old bank that I, I was CEO of, uh, Yakima National Bank, that I sold to Home Street Bank. That's why I was an executive vice president with them for a couple of years. About 10 years after I sold the bank to them, 
they came back and said, you know, we really don't like rural communities. We really don't like small businesses. We really don't like the kind of customers that you uh, that banked over there, so we'd like to get rid of it. I said, great, we'll do it. So we bought those five branches back. It's been wonderful. It's provided us great liquidity in deposits, and we raised capital, and it was just at the right time. If you can imagine having the two things that really matter the most, that is liquidity and capital, and we're in great shape. And uh, Home Street, who sold it to us, I bet would probably want those back. But they're not getting them back. So some of these ratios, I'm not going to bore you with them. They're tier, tier leverage and tier one and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's all a way to look at capital. We are in, in solid position. Regulatory capital, if you don't want to really get below eight. Uh, we, the, the benchmark is about 10 for a really healthy bank. So you can see we're, we're in great shape. Overcapitalized is a good thing. NPAs, that's non-performing assets. And I'm sorry I'm throwing Banking 101 at you a little bit, but you, you asked for it. <laughs> I'll probably never get asked back. That's okay. That'll be good. I mean, bank will be boring again. So we have $621,000 in non-performing assets, which would we consider they're, they're struggling a little bit. Out of a billion-dollar bank, that's pretty darn good. Uh, I get asked all the time for people that they say, hey, can we get a foreclosure? Can we get a good deal on a, on a property? And I, we just don't have hardly any uh, great deals because of all of our loans are performing. 0.06%. I mean, that's, that's about as low as you can get it. We've had them up higher uh, in the past. That's more normal, I would say. And I'd also say this, that if you take this on a backdrop of community banks, it looks about like this. This is very representative of the community banking space. We all are enjoying record credit quality. And that's what's really different about 08 and that bubble that occurred, is that right now we, we're, we're very, very well positioned. Another kind of busy one here, but our balance sheet we're, we're a growth bank, so we grew 29% in our assets year over year, 25% in deposits, 49.5% in loans year over year. So we're getting that money out and love to do that. But as you can see on the graph, that, that graph is going this way. When, when I got to the bank, uh, it was $250 million in assets. Now we're nearly a billion, 992. So we've seen tremendous growth. So this is our, our portfolio. These are the loans that we have. So CRE is an acronym, that commercial real estate. OO is owner-occupied. Uh, so you have non-owner-occupied at 20%, owner-occupied at 26. Then you have CNI, that's uh, commercial and industrial, at 15.1. And then if you want to put uh, farm and egg, it's kind of agribusiness. Uh, 20 or 9 percent. So if you add those all together, the 20 and uh, so you got 46 and 15 and the 10, you can tell we're very much a commercial bank. That's what we do. Uh, we really offer our products to businesses, high net worth people, and also to the to the uh, to the community. So that's the 
the breakdown there. And then uh, our rates. So one thing about bank accounting is that I talked to you about how securities are marked to market, right? On that AOC, on that on that available for sale. Try not to use acronyms here. In the rest of the portfolio, nothing's marked to market. It's kind of interesting. So deposits are not marked to market. So we have lots of deposits that are less than, say, market. So they, they would receive a higher mark. So we would get credit for that. Net worth would go grow. There are some loans that are below market. Those would get marked down. Some above market. Those would get marked higher. But none of that occurs in banking. Uh, GAAP does not cover it that way, only in the securities portfolio. So it gives kind of a skewed version or uh, view of a balance sheet when you just look at one little piece that ends up being like 20% of your entire balance sheet. So you really have to be careful. In, and I would say the other thing with regard to panic and, and people's perception is the media. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So that, uh, it's hard to rely on that. Okay. So I ran through that pretty fast. I, I would say just to conclude is that, uh, as I said, the two things, panic and mismanagement were SVB. Community banking is in great shape. Bank of Idaho is in particularly good shape even relative to peers. We are uh, just in a phenomenal position. And, and what, what we're going to do with that is that I, I predict, and I've heard some rumblings, that are, some banks are going to pull back a little bit. They're, again, they're, they're, they're human beings too, the people running these banks. And so they're like, oh gosh, what's going on? We're just going to pull back a little bit. We're not. We're not pulling back. We're going to continue to go right over the top. And we're going to continue to make deposits in the communities that we serve. We're going to keep loaning those small businesses, great loans, SBA loans, ag loans. We're going to keep doing it. And, and we know how to do it. We, we do it well. We're fast. And, and we have really good ratings when it comes to our audits to, with our uh, quality. We, we do that internally. And then we get examined as well by the FDIC and the state. And we're, we're doing very well. We, we have very good quality. We have very good standards that we uh, adhere to. So we're going to use that as an advantage. And we, and we know our customers. And we love our customers. They're our friends. So we're going to keep doing it. Good. I'll I'll stand I'll stand down here, oh. look up at you, oh dear, and ask you troublesome questions because okay. this is a very learned and well-informed audience. Uh, first thing, let me say, it's unimaginable. But if Hollywood were ever to do a remake of a, it's a Wonderful Life, you could be cast as George Bailey. I think oh. I think you could fit Jimmy Stewart's role very well. well. That would be my dream. So let's start. Let's start with a a very large question today, and that concerns the uh, possibility of imposing new regulations on banks, uh, maybe even including community banks, uh, as a result of the implosion of these two banks that we've been talking about. Yeah. And as you know, the Fed issued a, a pretty damning criticism 
not only of that local bank, but uh, looked at itself and said we could have done a better job of, of supervising. So what do you think about proposals? Do you have any in mind in terms of relaxation of regulations, increase or tightening, uh, both by uh, Congress and by the FDIC and the Fed? So what's interesting about the Silicon Valley Bank situation is they were under at, at, at advisements, matters requiring board attention. They, they had orders on them already and continued orders. And I would say the follow through wasn't there. And, and that is the, the biggest issue is that they need to actually take, take action. And we wouldn't be allowed to do that, you know, as a community bank. Uh, if, if we ever have any kind of even recommendation from our regulator, we do it. We do it while they're there if we can. And sometimes there's, there's little things that come up like that, that that they say, well, we recommend best practice you do this. We do it. I don't know why they were allowed to kind of slip there. Uh, so I would say the worst thing that we could do as a nation is to overreact because then, then we saw a little bit of that back in the financial crisis back in 08 and 09, is that there was an overreaction, which then lumped everyone together, and we all kind of go down with the keystone, and that would be a bad thing. Overreaction from the federal government's not usually a good thing. So I would say balance is important. Actually following the regulation that's in place, it would be good, and having Having the regulators uh, be be proactive, be in touch with their banks, and I think they're doing more of that. We just actually ended our exam yesterday. We had an FDIC and state exam, which unfortunately I can't disclose what, what the rating is. I wish I could uh, because it's confidential uh, by law. But it went well. Uh, I would say that uh, they they did come in we were a little worried that they would be overreactive, uh, but they were balanced. They, uh, but they were they, they were thorough, and that's good. I think a good thorough exam is a good thing. We always learn things through them. Thank you. Uh, sticking with the macro level for a minute, as you know, this question of whether to relax or tighten regulations is is always a, a matter of discussion and it becomes a political football as well. So if we went back to 2018 and 19, you know that the Trump administration pushed uh, and succeeded in passing a bipartisan bill that relaxed regulations. Uh, and then of course uh, we've, we've seen since then a con growing concern and with the relaxed regulations becoming the subject of blame uh, people pointing different fingers at Congress, uh, at the Fed. Uh, where do you see that, that political issue at this point as Republicans vie with Democrats on the issue of continued relaxation or tightening regulations? Yeah, it's certainly a topic and, and one that, that we've talked about in the Independent Community Bankers of America is one that's risk-based. What if we took a risk-based approach and said, folks like SVB, who are very concentrated in one sector, what if they had a higher insurance level? They had to pay more for their premium to be FDIC insured. And then folks like us, that are a little more vanilla, 
less risk, a whole lot less risk than them, we would pay maybe less. They're, they're, that, that's being kicked around because now with, with that failure, our FDIC assessment goes up to support what they did in covering all those. From a, from a Democrat, Republican standpoint, yeah, I really don't play in that area um, because my customer base is everything and everything in between, as far left as you can go and as far right as you can go and everybody in between and I love to bank all of them. So I, I really avoid taking any kind of political stance but certainly you're right. I mean, you're, you have knowledge of that, 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 that is being considered. I would like it not to be a political issue, but one that is in the interest of what's best for our financial system and its stability. One last question on this issue. As, yeah. as you know, President Biden has, has suggested to regulators uh, to, that we should reduce or to indeed exempt community banks from having to pay fees used to rescue uh, depositors. That must be pleasing to you? Well, I think an ICBA is probably part of that, the lobbying effort to do that. Uh, and whether that happens or not, we'll, we'll see. But yeah. I think risk-based would make the most sense. Thank you. Shifting gears to an area of your expertise for a moment. Yeah. Americans all across the nation in different sectors and disciplines are very concerned about cybersecurity. Yeah. And you, of course, are a leader on cybersecurity. How, how do you feel uh, on this issue of the relative security of American banking institutions now in that area? Well, it's one that is always increasing. That is not an area that we are probably ever going to see decrease. Where we get really good as an industry and I think as a nation is on, on the machine side. Uh, my my uh, CIO uh, really likes to break it down. I think he does it well. Is if you have the, the machine side, the network and all those kind of things, and then you have the people side, the users, right, and the people that interface. The, we're really, really strong. I think as an industry and as a nation, uh, we're a leader in the nation when it comes to cybersecurity and, and the, the machine side. Uh, firewalls, we have, we're using AI to predict and to respond to cyber threat, and I, I think it's the, the best that's ever been. And I think it's going to continue to get better. The weakness is on the people side. That is the weakest link from a customer perspective, phishing attacks, and, and, and they really, the, the fraudsters, the criminals, really prey on the weakest. Uh, and, and it's so sad. I, I see it almost every day. People that uh, are taking advantage, uh, the older community, uh, the, the people that aren't maybe as sophisticated, uh, are being taken advantage of. And that, that breaks my heart. And uh, I, I had a, a customer that uh, fell for a, for a scam and lost $20,000. Maybe to some of you, $20,000 is not a lot. But to that person, that was all she had. That, that was her entire savings was $20,000. And uh, it, it broke my heart to see her in that position. So I would say... The biggest piece of advice there from a customer perspective, uh, make sure you have good passwords, 
uh, make sure they're complex, make sure they use different characters, length and complexity is important, change them often, I know it's a pain, but do it often. And then from an industry perspective, we do a lot of training. We use Know Before, which is a program where we actually send internal phishing attempts to our own people. We just got one today, uh, spoofing management at bankofidaho.net, which is, looks right. And we sent it to somebody in our executive team, and they caught it right and, and sent it as a phishing email. So then we reward our employees and, and encourage them to continue to, to, to be mindful. If you don't know the sender, be very suspicious. If they have a phone number for you to call in the email, and they're getting really good these days, make sure you use an independent number. Don't use the one that's in that email. If it's from your bank, if they're asking you to do something strange, always call them independently uh, and, and, and talk to the person that you have a relationship with. Double check before you do anything. I've seen sophisticated borrowers, uh, customers, lose $100,000 because they didn't take that extra step. step. Uh, ACH, it was a wire, and, and a vendor was uh, submitted, and they just paid it. And they're out. They're out that money. And so just take that extra step and call, call your bank, call whoever you're dealing with to make sure you verify. Thanks very much. So it won't surprise you to know that we have several questions about interest rates. Yeah. Everybody's affected by interest rates. And okay. of course, that's part of this report. Some, some people have blamed, at least as part of the blame for the collapse, rising interest rates. So uh, the banking industry obviously is very affected, as are you we uh, customers. So one of the questions here is to ask your opinion of whether or not the Fed is doing the right thing by raising interest rates. They're focused on inflation and to get that inflation down as soon as they can, and they're being very proactive to do that. Uh, I don't know that it was the wrong thing to do, but I'll, I'll say this, that banking is not meant for speed. <laughs> we're, we're just not designed to have that, that rapid of increase. That, that puts a shock in our system. I, I started my banking career actually analyzing interest rate risk uh, back in my 20s with a sophisticated computer program that would shock our income statement balance sheet by 4%. And we said that that was unheard of. That would never happen. And here we are. We're in a shock scenario. And so that does, it does put a shock. But we also have very sophisticated interest rate risk programs, modeling programs, that can predict and say, okay, if this happens, what, what's the effect on your net interest income, your net income? What is the effect of your value of your equity, your net worth? So we all have that ability. And what uh, one of our directors, I love his quote, he says, we are in the spread business. What that means is that we make the difference between a loan and deposit rate. And we shouldn't be taking bets. We shouldn't be taking interest rate risk bets and saying, well, I think rates are going to go up another 50. I think I'm going to put it on black 11. No. We are in the spread business, taking care of our communities, taking care of our customers. So do I think it was the right or wrong decision? I think their decision was based on inflation, which is working. So I commend them for that. 
it certainly shocked the system, and it uh, there were consequences to that for sure. And, and as a banker, would you like to see a continued hike? There's speculation the Fed will raise it another quarter. Quarter or 50, I've heard, yes. Uh, we're, we're poised for it. We're ready for it. Uh, we're well positioned. Uh, I, I want them to finish their job. We've already gone through the pain. Let's, let's get the inflation down to where they want it. Uh, and then we'll see what normal looks like again. Maybe it goes back down. I don't know. It, but I, my job is not to to predict rates. Uh, I'm in the job of uh, running a good, solid institution that takes care of our communities. Yogi Berra says it's hard to make predictions, especially those about the future. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I might I be speaking in a different audience if I could predict rates. You could. So sticking with this question about rates and bringing it down to Main Street here, uh, we have a couple good questions good. about mortgage rates. Uh, there's, first of all, the observation that your portfolio when it comes to uh, residential loans seems to be relatively small from this perspective. I think you had 8.9% or yes. so. Um, and, and so uh, how do mortgage rates factor in to your decision to grant loans, mortgage loans? Yeah. And the second part of a, of a very good question, ask uh, what is the guidance with respect to people with lower credit rates trying to secure uh, a home mortgage and enter the the life of owning a home sure so we have two basic mortgage products one is sold on the secondary market that then is packaged up and used with mortgage-backed securities and and that's uh, that's something that's why our percentage is is lower relative to our balance sheet is because we traditionally have sold off a lot of those loans, which is really not fun. I, I'm a customer as well, and so you, they sell them about every 10, 10 minutes, and so you get a new servicer all the time, and you have to make sure you get the right place to send your check so you don't miss a payment. Uh, so that's irritating. We also have a portfolio product, and what that means is that we have a mortgage loan that you can secure and it stays on our balance sheet and that's why it is eight percent it would probably be closer to zero if we didn't have that portfolio product what's nice about that is that we can use our own credit standards and we're not tied to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae standards the government standards so that means for a jumbo loan say over four hundred thousand uh, dollars and it's maybe a, a new doctor in town or, or somebody that just uh, maybe doesn't have as long a track record. Uh, we can make those decisions uh, based on the circumstances. So we can get those mortgage loans in the right hands because we're, we're all about that. We, we want to make mortgage loans. And I will say that because rates have gone up, the, the, the volume of our production in mortgages has gone way down. The demand has gone down. Uh, we're still making them. People are still moving into the areas here in, in Washington and Idaho. So we're still producing, but just not at the rapid race, uh, rate that we were. Some people, uh, many people, uh, observe that uh, the 08 crisis was in part precipitated 
by the willingness of some uh, financial organizations to make loans to people who didn't meet the usual criteria for yes. a, a loan, right? Yes. And, and so uh, are, you, are you very uh, concerned about that when it comes to the inability of many people to come up with the down payment necessary to buy a home, 20%, for example? A lot of people can't raise that. From your perspective as a community banker, yeah. how can you help those people who can't summon 20% down? There, there are so many programs out there to, that will help with that down payment to get it uh, down to, say, 10. Uh, so so there, there are government programs out there. There, there are organizations that help with that. Uh, but I'd say from a macro level, subprime doesn't exist. I mean, it, it, uh, we really learned the lessons of 08 and 09. And speculative construction, remember, remember those days where we had so much speculation out there? That has gone way down. We, even in the heyday here a couple years ago, we didn't even see a huge ramp up in speculative uh, uh, investment and construction. And I think it's because those contractors, they learned the lesson too. They don't want to do that again. And we, we have a lot of customers that are contractors that self-manage. They say, you know what, we're going to put that project on hold for a moment and just kind of see where the dust settles and where rates go. And so there again, I think we are positioned so much differently. Uh, it's night and day compared to the, the financial crisis, at, at least where we stand today. Now, if we go into a recession, we have a credit issue. I think we're really positioned well for it, but that would be a little different story. Uh, if we have business failures and, and, and a struggle from a uh, community or, and business perspective, then that becomes a little different. But we have a lot of reserves. I think banking industry in general has a lot of uh, reserves built up right now to withstand a storm, if that were to occur. Great. Thank you very much. One of your listeners uh, asked a fundamental question. Yeah. In this system in which accountability is key, who is monitoring the managers, uh, both at a local oh. bank, the board of directors, and this. right up through uh, several layers? Oh, I love this. This is, uh, this is a, a really good question. I don't know. Uh, Park, did you ask that? <laughs> that would be a good Park question uh, because it's all about corporate governance. Uh, and it, it's actually a beautiful thing uh, when it's done right and when you don't have corruption, and, and we certainly don't have any of that. So you have the shareholders that own the bank, own the stock in the bank. They elect a board of directors. That board of directors is responsible for the oversight of management of the bank. They don't run the bank, and they shouldn't run the bank because then that circumvents the whole reason they exist. They are there to be representatives of the shareholder to make sure their interests are taken care of. And then the board, board of directors, hires or fires or whatever they need to do with the CEO in particular. Then the CEO or, or executive team, but in this case CEO, then the CEO hires the management team underneath him or her. So that's the beautiful thing about oversight is that then monthly, about every bank in the country, and certainly us, we meet with the board and we are accountable to the board. And then on an 18-month cycle, 
if you're a healthy bank. If you're not a healthy bank, it's about every six months. We're on an 18-month cycle. Uh, they, uh, the FDIC and state comes in and examines us. And then they look at the directors. They look at the board and say, how's your oversight doing? Are you getting the reports? Are you getting the necessary information from management to understand the condition of the bank? And they're very serious about that. They read all of our minutes of our board meetings. We have oversight like you can't believe. So that, that's how that system works. And we have um, numerous committees. We have your uh, loan committee, governance, audit, trust, and personnel. He's always got my back. Um, and, and those are the committees that report uh, up to the board and are, are chaired by board members. And so that's where that oversight is. And it works really well, at least for us. And I think where it breaks down is, is probably in corruption, uh, just like anything, right? Sure. Thanks very much. So you'll like this question. Uh, what's, the, what's the impact if, if Congress doesn't agree to raise the debt ceiling? Well, then, yeah, bad. This would be a bad thing. Yeah, we don't. We we need. Uh, we do not need to default. Uh, I think that would be probably the worst thing we could do is default on our debt. I like that succinct answer. Thank okay. You. Yeah. So here here's a question that hits home for many in our community and other communities that you serve. Of course, many nonprofits were the beneficiaries of the PPP program, and and the Bank of Idaho provided a number of those loans. Uh, we understand the benefit to the nonprofit organizations. Were there benefits to the Bank of Idaho or other lending institutions for participating in that program? Yeah, that it was a. That was actually a pretty good program, and that it did get money out to the community in uh, a broad base. Uh, it did pump a lot of liquidity in the economy, which caused inflation, <laughs> which now we have the hangover. <laughs> we, we, we had a little bit too much, Mick. And uh, <laughs> Mick doesn't have hangovers. I don't know if you knew that. He just stays in a constant state. <laughs> so, could we ask for a little more detail there, yeah, please? Yeah, no, that's all you're gonna get. That's all you're gonna get. So, uh, yeah, that 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 was a really good program, but uh, it did have consequences to it. Uh, we benefited in that uh, it was they, those were forgiven loans, so we had no credit risk. So th that was pretty nice. Now there was, there were, and I could come back and talk to you again about it someday, uh, is uh, there, was, there was fraud involved in some of these. Uh, we didn't experience a lot of it, uh, but there were fraudulent cases of PPP loans. Of course, you're always going to find that. And uh, th then we got a, a, a bit of a rate there. They, it was short-lived, but it, it did inject some income into the bank because of that, and, and I think it, it really helped uh, secure and buoy a lot of banks, which is why we're in such a strong position, I believe. That, that's a contributing factor. Not, not all banks participated in PPP, but, uh, but now we're kind of suffering the aftermath. 
Thank you. Here's a terrific question. You're going to look into your crystal ball. This is your Yogi Berra question okay. now. All right. So uh, with you, you mentioned cybersecurity. With the rise in popularity of chat, GPT, oh. and AI, how do you see the impact of the rise of AI and chatbot, chat GPT, on, yeah. on uh, the future of banking? Does it concern you? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, big time. And I, I think even in a broad base, not just banking, but cybersecurity in general, using uh, AI to actually initiate attacks. Yeah. If you let that sink in for a second, that's scary. And they can do it, uh, it can, or what, the, the AI can do it very rapidly and uh, in succession. So that, that's a brave new world out there. But the nice thing too, is you can use it as a defensive mechanism. So we can use AI on the defensive side to combat it. Um, just as a side note, I, I just received a letter from Pacific Coast Banking School that uh, they had to buy a program to grade and to uh, analyze the papers that students are sending in to this graduate school because people are already using them to write papers using chat to, to and and they can somehow tell that it is computer generated amazing development here's a good question about the operation of your bank or any bank uh, the 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 questioner wonders um, why are the are the bank's staff members considered part of public relation and commercial advertising for the bank is that a value added when you get the staff promoting the different services I think it's fundamental uh, because we, we value so much the community and we see the community as faces, as people, as families, real people and they are served by real people and that, that's the beauty of it and that is what makes us special is, is that, that interaction. And, and it's the power that uh, we are able to bank in our community, people, bank with people. Uh, that is the most powerful thing. And it's, it's the, that's really a huge differentiator in our security as well, because depositors trust and like us. And we're not gonna see a big run because we have that relationship with our friends. And they trust us, we trust them. And uh, we're going to be here for a very long time together. So it's, it's that relationship. That's why you see that, is because I firmly believe that people bank with people. Uh, so that, that's why we use it in our marketing. And I had an old, uh, old marketing guy tell me one time, he said, the fish stinks from the head. So if the if the head of that fish or if the head of that organization can't stand up for their brand and say the buck stops here there's a problem and that's why you see me stand up for our brand because i'm passionate about what we do and and uh, that's what gets me up every morning that's what i love here's an interesting question for you put your economist hat on and oh, your citizen's hat i'll get park here the, um, uh, so it's noted that um, American unemployment is at historic low, yeah. inflation's on a rise, uh, both numbers affect 
citizens across the country. In your view, what, what is it bet, what, which is better for the government to regulate inflation or to try to ensure low um, unemployment? Oh, dear. You're back in the classroom now. Yes. Well, I've, I've heard this. Uh, uh, the Congress uh, will ask questions like this, and it's, it's uh, one of those political footballs that you can't really answer that question correctly. We don't do politics. No, here. you fall no. into some trench there. Uh, you know, that, that really isn't for me to, to answer, doctor. It's, uh, yeah, I'm not a politician. I like that off-putting way when you call me doctor. <laughs> you, you, you think false flattery is going to get you anywhere? Well, here we finally saved the most. So. <laughs> we've saved the most difficult question and the most important question uh, for the end of our hour. Okay. What are your favorite golf courses in Idaho? <laughs> uh, Idaho Falls Country Club. <laughs> are you a politician or not? <laughs> you know, to be really, uh, really transparent. Yeah. I have played two courses in Boise. I've played nine holes at Crane Creek, and I've played Shadow Valley Golf Course two times. Uh, so yeah, I, I haven't played a lot uh, of golf because, I mean, there's some excitement going on here. <laughs> You're and, pretty and busy. Therefore, my game really stinks. So probing this in a little more detail, and imagine yeah. we're on the 19th hole with Mick Omen. And you're going to explain, you're going to explain why you think the Idaho Falls Country Club is your favorite course. What about that course? I love the greens. The greens are my favorite. And then the undulations, uh, the, the way the track is set up, uh, and then the way the wind affects certain shots. You can get some bombs out there, and you, can, you have to hit some low shots sometimes. So it uses every aspect of your skill set. It's, it's a challenging course, it's, uh, and it's, the, there again, the greens are beautiful. They're, uh, I think, world class. And full disclosure, I'm a member of the board. Oh, the that's right, so and they have a great board of directors that. there. Uh, one, last, <laughs> one last golf tip. As a veteran golfer in the competitive world, what kind of, what kind of tip do you want to leave our audience uh, for improving their golf swings? Relax. Relax. Yeah, the, the worst thing you can do is step up to the tee, and tense up because that affects all your muscles and gets you all bound up and I think that is also applicable in life. Just remain calm. Words of wisdom from George Bailey himself. Let's give a nice round of applause. Thank you. We've been listening to the City Club of Idaho Falls recorded April 28, 2023 with Jeff Newgard, Chairman, President and CEO of Bank of Idaho on the topic, Silicon Valley Bank Impacts, What Happened and What Did We Learn? This and all past Idaho Falls City Club forums are available to listen to at any time by visiting ifcityclub.com.